Hello, welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. In this podcast, we'll discuss some key regulatory and litigation considerations in the immediate aftermath of a cyber attack. I'm Hafiz Suleiman. I specialise in litigation and in particular international, commercial and cyber litigation. And I'm Ellen Lake, a regulatory and investigation specialist. And together, Hafiz and I are the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Associate Leads for Cyber Resilience and Security at Clifford Chance. Okay, so according to the UK Government's Cyber Security Breaches Survey of 2018, 72% of large UK companies experienced cyber attacks last year. Yes, and I think we've all seen recent headlines about British Airways and Marriott fines in that context. Yeah, so, so from a regulatory point of view, we've all heard of GDPR in some shape or form. Our recent experience is it needs to be front of mind whenever there's an attack scenario or systems have been compromised. So why is that? Well, I'm sure we all remember the pain of implementing the yeah. GDPR in yeah. the last few years. Um, and in particular, you may recall that it requires you to notify the relevant data regulator of a personal data breach without undue delay. Mm-hmm. And in any event, not later than 72 hours after becoming aware of it. Okay. A personal data breach is broadly defined as a security incident that affects the confidentiality, integrity or availability of personal data. So, sorry, the, uh, 72 hours, isn't that quite a long period of time? Well, 72 hours seems like a long time before you've experienced a cyber attack. But in the immediate aftermath of an attack, it can take quite some time to work out what's happened, including whether any systems or data has actually been compromised. Um, But not having all the details yet doesn't mean an obligation to notify of a breach hasn't arisen. If the obligation has arisen, and that is a grey area in many cases, then the regulator will expect you to make an initial notification and then submit further information ASAP. Right, okay. So it sounds like you need to get on it, you need to notify your home data regulator as soon as possible, and then what comes after that? Well, you may not be done if you notify your home regulator. If your breach affects individuals in other EU countries, you need to establish which European data regulator Mm -hmm. you should report to. Yeah. So you need to think about your lead supervisory authority and who they will be before you suffer a cyber attack. Before you suffer. Yeah, because you don't want to engage a load of expensive lawyers to advise on a data breach in Italy if actually your lead authority is the information commissioner's office in the UK. Right. So you need to make sure you notify the right EU regulator. Um, So then what's next? What comes after that? Well, actually, not so quick, because you may have data obligations outside the EU. So obviously GDPR is writ large in all our minds, still remembering the pain of implementation. But there are sophisticated data regimes elsewhere. So there's that that's regulated by the PIPC in Japan, which requires reporting without undue delay. Uh, to the SHIELD Act, which expands breach notification requirements in New York, Mm -hmm. to Singapore, where a breach of the Personal Data Protection Act can result in imprisonment for up to three years. So ideally, you want to be notifying all relevant regulators at the same time, because no regulator wants to hear about a breach from another regulator or the press before hearing about it from the firm itself. Right, yes, that makes sense. So certainly a lot to think about. So... That's notification covered off then? Uh, Not quite. 
if you're a regulated firm, you need to think about the requirements of your other regulator or regulators. Okay. So, for example, the Financial Conduct Authority of the UK requires regulated firms under Principle 11 of its Principles for Businesses uh, to report material cyber incidents. Mm -hmm. And an incident may be material if it results in significant loss of data or the availability or control of your IT systems, if it affects a large number of customers and or results in unauthorised access to or malicious software present on your information and communication systems. And you may think that the priority is notifying the data regulators where a breach has occurred, but your financial regulator won't necessarily expect to be a poor second for notification, particularly if a breach indicates the firm has systems and controls issues. So again, you want to be notifying all relevant regulators at the same time or in very close time period if possible. Okay, so that's a lot of notification to think about. Why does it matter so much? What are the consequences? Frankly, we've seen three very good reasons why it matters in um, recent months and weeks. And in ascending order, starting with a 50 million euro fine of Google by the French data regulator, the CNIL, for a GDPR breach. We've had a proposed fine of almost £100 million of Marriott by the ICO in the UK, and that was after hackers stole the records of 339 million guests of its mm -hmm. Starwood subsidiary. No, I heard about that, yeah. And last but not least, a proposed fine of over £183 million for British Airways by the ICO, following a hack which stole the personal data of half a million customers of the airline. Um, and what's really worrying, I think, in the case of Marriott, is that even though the breach was in the systems of a subsidiary, which Marriott didn't even actually own at the time the breach started. In fact, Marriott itself was fined based on a percentage of Marriott's turnover, not that of Starwood. Sorry, Marriott's turnover, yeah. not Starwood's turnover. Yeah. Okay, right, that is worrying. Yeah, so all in all, there is a lot to think about with notification obligations, and it's certainly not something you want to think about for the first time when the situation is unclear shortly after an attack. So it needs to be part of your cyber response planning and you need to have the right advisors lined up in the relevant jurisdictions which you might be hitting to make sure that you're meeting the particular notifi notification requirements of the local data regulator. Mm -hmm. uh, talking of not knowing where you are in the immediate aftermath of an attack, Arthur's, you're a litigator. Yeah. Uh, with all due respect, in circumstances where we are pretty busy sorting out the immediate mm -hmm. aftermath of a cyber attack. Why would we be thinking about litigation now? Surely that comes after? Well, no. I mean, actually, I'd say litigation is a, an essential upfront tool in your armory if you're a business that's just been hit by a cyber attack. So let's just concentrate on claims by a victim against the attacker for now. So traditional English law interim remedies, so those are the remedies granted by the court, while the substantive dispute is ongoing, like a freezing injunction, say, for the prevention of dissipation of assets, they can be crucial for companies in the immediate aftermath to an attack. So, I mean, we're, we're not always talking about malicious state actors here. Attackers can be relatively unsophisticated, uh, in which case, if you can identify them, for example, as an employee, uh, an urgent injunction can often just stop them in their tracks. Okay, so you can use the courts to try and stop the impact of the attack, but 
how do you do that if you don't necessarily know or know yet who's responsible for the attack? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, surprisingly, a lack of knowledge as to the identity of a cyber attacker isn't necessarily a barrier to relief in English law. Um, I think if there's one thing businesses in-house counsel take away from this on the litigation front, it should probably be that. Uh, A number of businesses have successfully pursued unknown cyber attackers in the English courts to recover lost monies. Um, CMOC was the key English case in which that process was undertaken. Uh, That was a case from 2018, but it's been followed by a string of other cases uh, like World Protein, for example, in which there was another order for interim relief made against persons unknown. That's a phrase which had its origin in the J.K. Rowling case against News Group back in 2003. Uh, In that case, there was a prohibitory injunction made against unknown distributors of a Harry Potter novel um, to prevent publication of a manuscript. Now, in CMOC, an international commodities business was victim of a BEC fraud. What's a BEC fraud? Sorry, uh, it, it stands for Business Email Compromise. So that's where an employee's tricked into paying company money to fraudsters pursuant to a fake invoice, for example. Now, in this case, hackers broke into a company director's account and sent payment instructions to the company's bank which made, I think, 20-odd payments to jurisdictions around the world. And in this case, it wasn't known who was the perpetrator of the fraud or who'd received the proceeds, but they did know the destination banks and account numbers. Uh, So there was no identified person who could be sued. There was little prospect of obtaining disclosure from foreign third parties to ascertain the facts behind the bank account numbers. Ultimately, what they did was they undertook a three-stage process. So the first stage was to issue a claim against persons unknown. The second was then to obtain a worldwide freezing order against those unknown persons. And then finally, they used that order as a springboard to obtain internationally enforceable disclosure orders interesting so you've convinced me that there are helpful litigation steps you can take in the immediate aftermath of an attack but if you get that order from the court against an unknown person how do you enforce that and Mm. actually how do you even serve an order on an unknown person yeah yeah it's a good point i mean enforcement is obviously going to be subject to the jurisdiction but Service in England is in a really interesting state of development at the moment. Uh, As you know, part six of the English civil procedure rules sets out the traditional position on service, which I think is probably what you're referring to, say the service on the person by leaving documents at the person's address, etc. Now in CMOC, the judge said that the court would consider proactively different forms of alternative service where they can be justified in the particular case. In the Clarkson case, Last year, the court allowed Clarkson to serve the claim form on an email address used by a defendant to make blackmail threats. So the process is developing as things stand. Hmm. But what about some other form of digital service? It sounds like it would be useful to be able to affect service virtually, given we're talking about attacks made in the same way. Yeah. Um, have the English courts kept up? the technology there yeah yeah absolutely 
Uh, it's a really good point. I mean, actually, in CMOC, the court expressed some positivity towards uh, the use of encrypted online data rooms. So that's exactly what you're talking about. So, I mean, they save significant costs and time. They can be updated dated regularly. Uh, they benefit from allowing the court direct access to the data room and the contents. And then going further than that, alternative service can extend to social media. I've previously been involved in cases in which applications have been made to serve via WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and on other platforms. In India, the Indian courts are reported to have authorized service by WhatsApp, and they identified the double blue tick function uh, as an acknowledgement of receipt. So, I think it's not entirely clear to me what would happen if the functionality was switched off. Um, in Singapore, in 2016, the state court accepted that an Australian-based games developer could be notified of a civil action through Facebook. Um, in England, as early as, I think, October 2009, uh, the English court allowed a claimant to serve an injunction against an anonymous Twitter user by sending a Twitter direct message containing a link to the injunction. Uh, and that ordered the defendant to refrain from impersonating the claimant on Twitter. So the English court is coming to the realisation that the world is changing and that the traditional rules of service need to keep up. Um, I mean, more progress on this has been made in the last few years than in decades before, so it's, a, it's an exciting time to be a litigator. So for me, listening to that, aside from uh, turning off the double blue tick function on my WhatsApp, mm -hmm. I think the key takeaway from a litigation point of view is that litigation isn't something which you need to consider further down the line. It's important to get advisors in quickly after an attack to try and take advantage of the interim relief that you talked about. And it really could be worth it, even if you think your cyber attacker has disappeared into the yeah, ether. Exactly. Um, and from a regulatory point of view, uh, I, I'm still reeling from the size of those GDPR fines. So my key takeaway is that you need to ensure that you've got a plan in place for how to draft notifications in short order should the worst happen uh, and send them to the right regulator or regulators using the experience of those who have clearly done such notifications before. Yeah, I think we both agree that if businesses have the right advice, they'll discover that in the event of a cyber attack, actually they've got many more options from a regulatory and litigation point of view than they had originally expected. Mm -hmm. That's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you also had some takeaways from our discussion. If you have any questions about your business's cyber response plan, or if the worst happens and you experience a cyber attack, do get in touch. We'd be happy to help. And... If you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of our other podcasts on cliffordchance.com or for more information on some of the topics we've discussed today, have a look at our online risk hub at cliffordchance.com risk, where we have a dedicated cybersecurity page. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Stay tuned for more coming soon to cliffordchance.com.